If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. Hello, welcome to the John Rod Tapes. In this week's episode, I interview Don Letts about his time on the punk rock front line and the amazing scene that was around the time and his influence in it. So, uh, what kind of music get? Well, I'll just talk about your background, because mm-hmm. that's quite interesting. Background? Okay, first generation British black. I mean, that term kind of rolls off the tongue now, doesn't it, British black? But believe me, growing up, I was born in 56, I was old as rock and roll. My parents came over in the whole Windrush thing, you know, promise, promise of a better life and all this stuff. Came with their home hopes and dreams, and they're fucking 45s, you know. Anyway, so I'm third generation British black, and back then that term was very confusing. And it was through music that I found my feet. Oh, was it, were you living out here? I was living in Brixton. Brixton, right. You know? Yeah. And it was, like I said, through music that I got this alternative education. Well, alternative into... You were a big Beatles fan at school, weren't you? Yeah, but let me... Yeah. I'm going to say my early stuff is... Yeah. Kind of, what I'm basically getting at is music, even from those, those days, was an inspiration as regards to working out where I stood within this society, white society, should I say. And, uh, you know, it gave me information about where, where I was coming from. I mean, I, you know, they weren't going to teach me about Marcus Garvey at school, believe me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got that from a Berlin Spear record. Yeah. So the idea of music... Well, that's not getting... The idea of music conveying entertaining and conveying information and communicating ideas was there already for me through reggae. I mean, reggae had, had got to be said, a very musical reportage quality about it. You know, it dealt with things like how are we going to live, you know, and how are we going to do it together. And it was that aspect of reggae, besides the bass line and the weed, that the punks picked up on, you know, that you could have a good beat but fucking say something too. Anyway. So what kind of music we listen to? Which well, my, you know, it would have been Toots and the Maytals yeah. and King Stitt and uh, basically Blue Beat and Scar, that my, and, uh, the stuff that my dad would have been playing. But then dig it, I'm, I'm going to grammar school, all white, except for me, one black kid for about the first three years. So I'm surrounded, immersed, submerged, being drowned in all this white culture at the same time. I'd be at home, Blue Beat, Reggae, Rock Day, yeah. blah, blah, school. You know, my white mates are starting to listen to, you know, it was the glam thing was happening. I'm listening to the, actually Tyrannosaurus Rex before fucking T-Rex. Yeah. My children were fair and all that shit. And, uh, but, you know, nice and uh, cream, you know, Israeli gears and uh, uh, King Crimson and uh, Captain Beefheart. So cool shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm sort of, you know, anyway. <clears throat> the, so the social climate was kind of cool because... Enoch hadn't made his Rivers of Blood speech yet. So kids would say, call me this and that, but it wasn't, it didn't have that kind of, any kind of a political grounding. Because as I said, my man hadn't made that speech, even if it was that motherfucker that asked us here in the first place. That's another story. Yeah, yeah. You know that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, he makes the Rivers of Blood speech. All of a sudden, I'm a black bastard. Did that make a difference in your school then? Absolutely. Yeah. All of a sudden, it, these... Innocent digs have become a bit more poignant. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, when I was young, I was black, four-eyed. I was fat, four-eyed and black. And I could have buried most people, but I kind of, what did I say, if it doesn't 
kill you, it makes you stronger. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, when the kids would call me, you know, black bastard at school, was, yeah, I'd be like, instead of like running away crying, I'd be like, yeah, I am a black bastard. What are you going to do about it? Because the thing is, about that time, shortly after, I don't think it was before or after, anyway, I, you know, we, we started to get the images of the civil rights movement coming over from America. You know what I mean? We, you know, we got the Angela Davis badges on. You know, we're aware of the Black Panther. So I'm getting this kind of, I'm getting that kind of political awareness coming at me from one angle, and then the reggae kind of militancy coming from Jamaica. You know, shortly after, you know, not too long after, I guess, compounded, and it all seems to come together with Bob Marley. So, and it was yeah. through being immersed in, with all, being hanging out with my white mates, you know, and all this stuff that I became, I met, I became a Beatles fan back in the day. I remember one of the first things I bought, I think the first single I bought was Penny Lane. The first album I bought was What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. But I became like a, a, I say a massive Beatles fan in the worst sense. Yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I became a collector of the fucking wigs, the cups, the, you know, the wallpaper. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and at one time in my life, I was actually, I, the, the, the second largest collector of Beatles memorabilia in this country. Wow, that's amazing. And it wasn't yeah. until punk rock came along that I looked at all this shit that was around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was actually something, I was being interviewed by Lomo Vogue magazine, and they'd come to interview me about my Beatles collection, and the punk thing was just on the bubble. So it must have been about 75-ish, you know, mid-75. As I'm doing the interview, I'm like, what is all this shit? <laughs> anyway, it was only ever about the music, and everything else is fucking bollocks. And I think I stopped being in the interview, and the next day I swapped the whole lot for an American car. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. But you're obviously a bit of a pop, pop culture obsessive. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's funny. I got, like everybody else, I stupidly got rid of a lot of great music that I was listening to up to ground, so-called ground zero punk rock. But no, I mean, the Beatles, hey, you know, enough said. Yeah. You know. So what, when did you first wear Beatles, Dylan, you know, I mean, I got it all. I mean, Bob Dylan, folk music, folk music, folk music originally is fucking punk rock. Oh, totally, yeah. You know, yeah. but I'll let somebody else tell you that story. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell the black side of what's going on. So when you, when you first wear this, a lot of problems come along, 74, 75. Well, it's a funny one for me because I must have been, I, I got started working on the Kings Road, Chelsea. I don't know, I was working in the jean machine or something at the time. And anyway, I discovered Malcolm's shop down at World's End. But this is before sex and traditional music. This is like, let it rock. It might have been before, before that. It might be, a short, one time it was called Too Fast to Live, Too Young to Die. Then yeah. it was let it rock. Well, I, I walked in there, it was Too Fast to Live, Too Young yeah. to Die. And the shop was fucking empty. Just Vivian and Malcolm in the shop. And I stumbled into this Aladdin's den of kind of white subculture of the last 30 years. And it was fucking amazing. Has to be said. I mean, you know. And anyway, somehow I become. You know, I was a bit of a mouthy lad back then. You know, through my grounding and fuck at school and all that shit, as I told you. And I became friendly with Vivian and, Vivian and Malcolm. I don't know how, but we did. Struck up a relationship. I kept visiting the shop. Shortly after Malcolm goes to New York, 
I now later realised that it was to do, to do the dolls, dolls thing. Yeah. And uh, Vivian's here, and I used to hang with Vivian. I mean, she used to take. She took. I remember her taking me to Lou Reed shows. So pre the punk, ex, the actual punk explosion, I was getting this alternative education in. You know, it has to be sort of gets white subculture. Although they're, they're into certain aspects of the whole rude boy thing and the West Indians, and yeah. they had that kind of white fascination that the white intellectuals and art classes do with black culture. You know, that, you know what I'm saying? That yeah, ongoing yeah. thing. We must talk about that as well. The fact that the whole punky reggae thing—that wasn't the first time we got together. People make a lot of this punky reggae connection and go, "Oh, weird connection, direct yeah, opposites," yeah. you know. But let's be honest about this. I mean, the mods. As far as I understand it, we're into listening to a lot of Blue Beat records. Yeah. And then my first-hand experience of it was through the first skinhead movement, which, like I say, was a fashion thing. It wasn't a fascist thing. And uh, these white working-class kids, for whatever reason, I guess the obvious, identified with this Jamaican music, the kind of stuff that was coming out on this label called Trojan. And, uh, you know, I guess the reason they were drawn to it is that it would have been the only rebel sound around that was totally anti-establishment that had this kind of soundbite lyrics that had an emphasis on style the whole two-tone stay press trilby you know what i mean mohair business that totally tapped into the currency of what where young people's heads were at and it was like i say the only rebel sound around so this fascination with black realm music obviously there was a first-hand example of it from my experience, and I, you know, and I was a black skinhead. You know, I had me Crombie with me little folded hanky with the type in through the fucking thing, and me Prince of Wales check with the ice blue window pane, and my brogues or loafers. I mean, I was totally there. You know, so state about press, Levi State Press. You can't get any more. No, I believe by the original class. state press, they yeah. make out some, they made some fake thing. Shit, you can't. The which is good, yeah. Kind of... And the Ben Sherman, you know, and all that stuff. So this is about. If like... you couldn't afford Ben Sherman, it was Brutus. <laughs> anyway, um... is this seventy seventy one about? Yeah, I've got pictures of me dressed like that. Shit, I'll have to dig out. We'll have to do. A, I'll have to get some pictures for you. But anyway, so I did all that stuff. But again, let's and let's go back on. Let's keep on this train of thought. This whole thing of white artists sort of looking to black culture for inspiration again you know why do people think jagger and richards and jimmy page and jack you know lennon and carney were listening to yeah so like i say it was an ongoing this you know it's rooted all the way back the punky reggae party didn't start there the difference is this though is that before that punky reggae x um dynamic the fascination with black culture was this thing that was removed i mean with, you know these guys are fascinated with some sound that was coming from the mississippi delta yeah. Joe Strummer, Paul Simonon, John Lydon, they were digging sounds that they could hear on either side of the River Thames. Do you know what I mean? In other words, you know, they'd hear our music coming through their fucking walls. So it was a, it was a bit more um, direct contact. I guess because the first generation had been around long enough exactly. for that culture yeah. to get mixed in. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So like I said, it was... Um, it was, it was intravenous almost it wasn't this abstract distant thing you think yeah yeah I'm saying? yeah and you know out of all that interaction got us to where we are today with a multicultural explosion blah 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 that really you know i've got to say this it doesn't exist anywhere else on the fucking planet 
No, but Britain, when you go around the rest of the world, it's amazing how multicultural it is. You kids of all different races hang around Britain, which you don't see yeah. in other countries, do you? That's right. Yeah. But, you know, like I say, people go, what about Manhattan? I'm like, look, you've got black people, Puerto Rican, and then Hispanic. And the only reason they actually mix is the fucking place is so small. Yeah, yeah. But there's no actual creative they interaction. They have areas. They have a Polish area. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. And there's no actual creative interaction. Yeah. Serious interaction. Like, I mean, that's why this fucking town is as creative as it is. And that's... I mean, well, let's not even get into this. It's, you know, that's rooted in the social development of this country. You know, I mean, I tell people, my forefathers were dragged, kicking and screaming to Africa, but my mum and dad bought a ticket to this place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's pros and cons to all that, but let's not get into all that. Get ready! We got three million miles to reach on the moon. So let's start getting happy now. Ready? Yeah, 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 yeah! So you're at King's Road, you hang around with Vivian. Vivian, okay. Yeah. And then... Um, Wait, which shop are you working here? Still their Dream Machine? Well, you know what? I think what happened is I've, I've, I've done a stint on King's Road. I've done the Dream Machine. I've done the, this Italian high fashion thing as well. Oggi Domani, you know. And, you know, like a right ponce. Like, kind of like a clutch bag and all this. <laughs> yeah, stuff. yeah. And I think the song... So like, you're very into clothes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, like, you know, it would be funny if most kids grow up in London. I mean, I, I guess everywhere. I can only speak for... But that's just the currency that young people speak in. Yeah. Clothes and music and sex. Yeah. It's a bit drug dabblings creeping in, you know, smoking a cigarette and going weak at least from the cigarette, <laughs> you know, and then buying the odd spliff and trying to finish a spliff and passing out at the local blues dance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trial by fire, no fucking about. You know, I, went, I mean, I dived in. I dived into that whole youth, what is that? That time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of those formative years. Dived in. Anyway, um, where was I? So, yeah, so, so, so okay. Central State Five, Vivian's shop. Hanging out at Vivian's shop. Wow. Okay, I know how it went. Right, so Punk hadn't happened yet. Punk was happening. It wasn't even in the air, actually, now I come to think of it, because I got offered a job by this other guy whose shop I'd walked into that looked interesting. Um, like John Gravine. And it opened this thing called Acme Attractions. Not a lot of people know, it's got kind of a written out of the story. The Acme Attractions is an important part of the story. Um, um, so he opens this stall, it's kind of retro clothing, jukebox, I'm sitting on a scooter, and it's a small stall upstairs at the Antiquarius. And I've got the jukebox loaded with heavy reggae. And the Antiquarius is this really austere place with a load of really old people. And they, I basically was pissing them off. So, they wanted to kick us out, couldn't kick us out, they pushed me down into the basement. And that's the acne attraction that would become semi-legendary. And uh, this is happening just as the punk rock thing is starting to take root now. You know, and as the story goes, I guess people know that people were coming, you know, fucking, I don't, I don't know if I, do I need to take, in the film, you know, that stuff about, you know, the social climate of the late 70s. My white mates are all feeling pretty alienated. You know, job opportunities are scarce. So in the late 70s, there's this fucked up social political climate. The sus laws are in. There's high unemployment, strikes, all kinds of shit. General feeling of no feeling, no, no future. Yeah, yeah. And uh, my white mates were beginning to feel, I guess, pretty alienated. Do you know what I mean? Um, I didn't need that much pressure. I was feeling alienated from day one, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
you know, I had something to alleviate the pressure a bit, which was the music, you know, reggae. So I had some kind of expression of the way I felt. My white mates never had that. What's happening around that time? We're talking stadium rock. Shit that's totally removed from the vibe on the street. You know, as I tell it, people are singing about Hotel California and we don't even know where California is. Much yeah. less being able to check into a fucking hotel. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so my white mates, make, like white contemporaries, set about sort of creating their own soundtrack of the people, for the people, by the people, that would eventually become known as punk rock. Um, and this is, like I said, that period 75. I mean, I wasn't around for the London SS. You know, where I came into contact with all this stuff was, well, as they started to come into the shop, because people on Saturdays would go between, there's two shops, the Hatley shops and the King's Road, Hackney Attractions and Vivian and Malcolm shop. Our shop was a lot more user-friendly, because, you know, you'd get a pair of trousers in there for 20 quid. Vivian Malcolm shop, you'd have to spend 60 quid. And it wasn't so inviting. It was a bit more cold in there. My place was like, I mean, all the tribes from all over London would meet in that place. It was definitely a lot more user-friendly. And it was definitely kind of showing you the way that London was heading, this kind of cultural clash. You know, I'd be pumping our reggae in. So well, who's going down on those people? Oh, man. Well, everybody that was anybody in the punk scene in London. Yeah. Passed around the attractions. But also, you'd get... You know, I became friends with Patty Smith because she stumbled into the shop with Lenny Kay because they heard the bass lines coming out onto the Kings Road Chelsea. You know, Deborah Harry would stick her head in. Um, Bob Marley would come in, but I actually met friends with him through another route. Um, you know, I followed him to a gig from a gig one night. If you need to know, I'll tell you. Anyway, so you've got all the major players and the bit players passing through. And uh, see, back in, you got to understand that back in those days, shops were the centre of creativity almost. And before that, you know, I mean, before that, it was places like um, Granny Takes a Trip and Alcacura and uh, Mr. Freedom. And it was, I don't know why, they, you know, they became like more like kind of clubs in a way. Yeah. Like, like, basically, I know what it is. It's, like, it's a place where like-minded people could yeah. kind of meet. Yeah. And they wouldn't just buy clothes. You kind of find out what was happening and got turned on to, do you know what I mean? So it's, it was a focal point for like-minded people. And back in those days, shops were it. You know, simple as that. Because, yeah, punk rock wasn't happening then because I remember. Because when these guys start coming into shop and I realised they're getting a bit of press and profile, initially I was a bit sort of threatened by it. And, but not in a... It's just in that young, macho guy kind of way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm king of the block. And all of a sudden there's some other people kind of stealing my space. And this was manifest in the fact that my girlfriend, a girl called Jeanette Lee, who would later become part oh, of yeah. Public Hell, Image, yeah. and now is Miss Rough Trade. Before punk rock, she was kind of like the typical of the white working class youth, totally immersed in kind of black culture. But she was, you know, she was a kind of smarter than the average beer. And I guess, you know, for the thinking person back then, I guess it must have been a bit of a dilemma or something. I don't know. But anyway, punk rock arrived just in snicker time because obviously she threw herself into it. And, you know, initially I was sort of reticent because I was like, oh, he's got stealing my limelight and stealing my girlfriend's interest. Oh, fuck, how dare But, um, so initially I was a little standoffish and John would come down and he'd look at me and I'd look at him and same with Paul and Joe. You know, that kind of, yeah, yeah. Man, it's like a yeah. West Side Story kind of thing, you know. <laughs> but, you know, very soon, you know, I think through Jeanette's interest, I ended up going to the Pistols at the Nashville and I saw the clash at the Roxy Harlesden with the buzz cops of the slits and somebody said, well, fucking hell. And, uh, you know, it didn't take, you know, you'd have to be deaf, dumb and blind not to see that there was something going on. And these guys, 
It's what those people demanded respect. It's what those gigs, pistol skis likes at Nashville. Listen, I didn't know what the fuck they were saying because the PAs are really bad. John was, you know, it wasn't about the vocal delivery, yeah. man. You know, mm. it was this fucking energy that said, you know what? You thought, you know, we're rewriting the script. You know, whatever you think it is, it isn't. You know what I'm saying? It was, it was a revelation. You know, when I, I remember seeing the Clash, and I remember seeing them at Hulls and they're saying, "Was it I'm in love with Jenny Jones and all this stuff?" I don't, I don't know what it was, but I was like transfixed. You know, it was like I say, it was like looking into the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. You know, because all of a sudden these guys I'd seen sloping around in my shop and facing me off. They're up there doing it. And it didn't seem like that big a leap. Some people want to lead and some people want to be led. Yeah. It's not a bad thing to say. And I knew long before the clash and the pistols came along that, you know, I remember going to gigs, looking at Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder, Isaac Hayes or whatever I was into back in there, and looking at these guys on stage, and I'm like, okay, this guy's great and he's doing something, but what about me? It's my role on this planet just to make that guy feel good. And I remember consciously thinking that as a kid. So I was already looking for a way to express myself. But it was definitely with the advent of punk that I was like, okay, here's the ticket. Yeah. You know. So what, what, so what are you thinking of doing at first? With well, I was in the shop, like I say, managing. I'm doing very nicely. I mean, like I say, I mean, when I say managing the shop, it was like, I was going to say being in a band back then in the shop. It was a really cool fucking place. I mean, I used to sell weed under the counter, and there was a whole other bunch of stories I could tell you about the attractions, man. But, um... Cool. Well, tell us a couple. Yeah. I remember Peter, I mean, got around amongst cool people that I knew that I'd sell a bit of weed under the tape, under the counter. And I remember Peter O'Toole coming in for someone. I had my dark, I might walk around dark glasses. And he came in and I noticed him. I pulled my dark glasses down. <laughs> just like, and he had regular glasses on. He pulls his regular dark glasses down and just goes, like <laughs> you know. Um, but, I mean, the start, you know, Marley being in the shop trying to fucking pull Jeanette while I'm sorting out his weed in the back, you know, behind the counter. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, like I say, had me attraction. Then, like I say, Vivian and Malcolm shop, like I say, the clothes in Vivian and Malcolm shop deservedly get, you know, yeah. no, you can't take away the fact that it was, it is art. And uh, they did give the look and identity to punk rock as people think of punk rock. Um, but as far as social interaction between people, and going forward that way as where sort of the multicultural way that London was heading, Acme was it. No two ways about it. What kind of clothes were you selling then? Wow. Okay. The, those jelly sandal shoes and plastic see-through mats and fluorescent pink um, drape peg leg trousers and electric blue zoot suits and also jukeboxes and pinball machines. I think we called it 20th, Acme Attractions, 20th Century Antiques. I think it was called. Well, I right, sell so other stuff as well, apart from clothes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, so Andrew Tchaikovsky is the accountant for Acme Attractions. Punk rock's exploded. These bands ain't got nowhere to play because of their reputation. They can't get to play regular venues. Andrew sees a gap in the market. He 
goes to this old gay club called Shagaramas, takes it, it wasn't doing too well at that time, and takes it over and has the idea of creating the first, I guess, UK punk rock venue, dedicated punk rock venue, the Roxy. They need a DJ. Andrew sees the reaction that I get from playing music in the shop. Because after the reason people came into the shop, the original, original reason they came to the shop is they never heard of it, word of mouth, or they could hear the bass line coming out onto, onto the King's Road, and that would drag them in. And then they'd look at the clothes and Jeanette, not necessarily in that order. Um, so anyway, Andrew needs a DJ. He says, Don, do you want a DJ at my new punk rock club? I'm like, yeah, I've never DJed in my fucking life, you know. Luckily for me, um, the, there's two decks in the Roxy, but only one worked anyway. So he gets this thing going, and this is so early in the day that literally no band has recorded any punk records. But I'm hip, you know, and I'm sort of, I've been hanging with Vivian Malcolm and got this all, sort of alternative age education and white culture that stemmed back to me hanging out with my white mates at grammar school. So I'm slipping in some Velvets. I'm slipping in Iggy and the Stooges. MC5. The Saints, Stranded. I remember we used to play that. Oh, great. Jonathan Richmond. And all the things I think people know now as part of the kind of, you know, the lineage. And, uh, but mostly, I played dub reggae. Mostly because I couldn't keep playing those few punk records, what I called, I saw as punk records all night. And I loved dub reggae. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't going to play something I didn't like, was I? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I'm playing reggae mostly because there weren't any punk records to play. But as the band started getting signed, and they did start releasing records, Dams, Neat Neat Neat, or New Rose. New Rose, wasn't it? Yeah, October 76. And uh, I start slipping them in, and all of a sudden, it's funny because the punks didn't want me to play, and they're like, "No, keep playing the reggae." And, you know, and realise that obviously they were obviously turned on about by the anti, the sort of anti-establishment vibe, you know, burn down Babylon business, you know. Obviously, it was, um, you know, the bass lines, the bass lines, the lyrical kind of content, the fact that these songs were about something. And I'd like to say, again, it was the ultimate rebel sound around. So a lot of people were being directly inspired by it. And some, obviously, and some not so obviously. I mean, prime examples are of, like, The Clash and uh, John Lydon, who I think were halfway there already without my help. But bands like The Slits were the bands that were totally absorbing the kind of reggae culture. And I think one of probably the best example of kind of the ultimate punky reggae hybrid. It was at the Roxy that I realised it was in by revelling in our differences and not by trying to be the same that we actually became closer. Unlike my parents' generation, who tried to be like their white hosts and could obviously never fulfil that dream because look at us. Yeah. But uh, so I was digging the white man's culture down there, where they, they were digging my culture, and that made us closer. Prime example of cultural exchange. Um, a lot of punks couldn't make spliffs. In fact, most of them couldn't make spliffs. So me and the boys that ran the club, because I'd got the rest of my Rasta brethren involved. I lived in a house in Forest Hill with four or five other Rasta brethren. Leo Williams, who later joined Big Good Dynamite and Dread Zone. JR, Tony, my brother Desmond. We were literally the staff, the doorman, blah, blah, blah. And so we realised there was a gap in the market. So the rest of the Rasta posse would be at Forest Hill making ready remote roll splits and you sell them behind the counter and I remember Shane McGowan one day like give me two beers and a split and then he pauses for a moment he's like no 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 make that two splits and one beer 
know, <laughs> that's the last time you said that. Isn't it? Social, <laughs> serious social, you know, social interaction, yeah. a cultural exchange going on here. Yeah. Uh, no, the Roxy was great for that, man. It was really good for that. Um, what were the bands like that played there? Was it? Most of them were rubbish. Yeah. I got, I got to say, me, you know, I was a simple kind of guy. I was like Clash, Pistols, Subway Sect, Buzzcocks, Slips, Banshees. That's the ones that come to mind immediately. And then the other bands I like bits of. I'm not going to lie and say I liked all that stuff. And I've got to say, I mean, most of the bands are fucking rubbish and really absurd. I mean, as, you know, as per, you know, as per usual, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. there's an excuse for a lot of really people that shouldn't have been up there. They should have been in a nut house, you know what I'm saying? Um, Johnny Moped. No, I, Johnny, I, I love Johnny, because yeah. I mean, my man is like straight out of one floor of the cooker's nest. <laughs> but no, he should have been up there because he was pretty. He's an exception to the rule. He'd actually been doing it for quite a few years. I was going to say, there's yeah. a few, there's, a, there's mad geniuses in there. No, I love Johnny Moped. Um, but no, definitely there's a lot of rubbish in there, obviously. I mean, the interesting thing about, I always remember, you know, hanging out with John and the, Cla and the Clash guys and all the slacks and slits. No one ever actually sat at home and listened to punk. You know, in fact, most of them sat at home and listened to reggae. That's what I like it is. Yeah. John was looking a bit further afield. He was listening to things like, well, I remember Can and... Yeah, and Dream, Dream, Peter Hamill and stuff like that. Pete. Well, he's more, of a, he's more of a long hair guy, really. And he's yeah, you know, as well, he's big horse. Yeah, yeah, you know, but at the same time, on the flip side, also, he'd put on some fuck. He'd be like playing 45s that I hadn't heard. You know, and John famously one did that radio show where he played Dr. Montada's Born for a Purpose that he famously championed. championed. And like I said, like, so many times, people would make a lot of me turning punks on a reggae, but the ones I turned on to reggae were the ones that didn't live next to black people. Yeah. Which, yeah. back in those days, it has to be said, was a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. You know. Whereas John, Joe, and Paul, they were there already. You know what I mean? They were definitely there already. Um, I remember getting Pally with Tardo in years to come. It's funny because this punk rock thing, another little thing I thought about the other day is how through the rep of punk rock and me reinventing myself as a filmmaker, it opened a load of doors for me within the reggae circles. Because all of a sudden I'm this English dread with a camera that has a possibility of putting you on screen. Big fucking deal back then, man. Yeah, it was a, you know, in fact, a big deal for any kid to be wandering around with a fucking camera. now it's done the Bill Grundy thing which I've got to say was fucking detrimental to the punk rock scene you know it created that tabloid punk rocker that was definitely what it wasn't about so I think punk would have broken without Bill Grundy then yeah yeah I, yeah oh, but it, it did help them get to base one much quicker so there's pros and cons good point but it's got a rep you know we ain't stupid black people you know we can see I mean obviously I'm right there you know ground zero so I can see what's going on but my brethren knew that Don Lex is working with these <laughs> dealing with these crazy white people when I first got a DJ job, I went home to Forest Hill and said to my Rasta brethren, hey, you want to work at this punk rock club? And they all fucking laughed at me. <laughs> and when they went down to Roxy and saw that untapped herb market <laughs> and the women, the brethren were right in there. Anyway, um, so, but then they did become genuine friends. Watch anyway, um, punk's got a reputation as the, the, the bad boys, right? And because of that, 
the reggae posse could definitely identify with them. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, all right, these white boys don't like the music, but they're rep, we can dig that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The anti-establishment profiles I'm talking about. And then I would take, in my capacity, the reggae ambassador. I'm joking. But I, you know, I became friendly with John and Joe and Ari, particularly those people, those three, through our mutual love of reggae. And I would take them to, it was like we said, serious fucking reggae clubs, four aces in Dalston. No white people didn't go down there before that. And I'd take, an individual, I'd take it to Joe or John or Harry, and they've got respect. It's got to be said, the very fact that they can walk through the fucking door, they've got respect. Yes, it's not like weird shit. No, 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 no. I mean, people, obviously, the first thing they were like, well, and then they, they realised, oh, one of them punk rockers we've been hearing about. And like I said, the fact that they walked in there, they got respect. Do you know what I mean? And because they had, the punk rockers had the anti-establishment vibe, it was like, you know, like-minded people again, the rebels aligning themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uneasily, but, you know, and, you know, they could see it, and they kind of, they could see that these guys like the music, and they liked them for that, it's got to be said. You know, I took Joe Strummer to Hammersmith Palais the night he was inspired to write that fucking tune. Yeah. Interesting night that Joe's gone there, which is what the song's partially about. He'd gone there to see this kind of roots, reggae, you know, ghetto vibe show. Not knowing that, obviously, you know, you know, in Jamaica, Ghetto, in the very nature of the word, it's something that you get out of. It's not something you aspire to. Yeah, if you make your money, you keep going down that road. So uh, you know, he went, he goes down to the and of course, it looks like Las Vegas to him. And he was, he was a bit thrown by that, you know what I mean? But yeah. he realised that was his own misconception, and he alludes to that in that song. You know, Which is a brilliant thing to write about. Yeah, yeah. And then of course he relates, and as Joe always does, he relates it to his own personal experiences. You know what I mean? During that, after that period after he got shot, he's holed up in England for about six months, staying around Chelsea. And uh, I'm selling him weed. I go around there one day to collect some money off him. He owes me money. I got my bondage shit on. Yeah. I'm hip. <laughs> Bob's like, Damlet, what the blood clot are you in? <laughs> he's been reading the Daily Mirror. <laughs> you look like one of them nasty punk rackers. <laughs> What are we talking about? This is the fucking lick, man. He's like, no, nah, man, we've got them people are nasty. I'm like, no, nah, that's not really what's going on. Check it out. And we had a kind of half an argument about it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, I walked out there in a bit of a half, defending, you know, these crazy ball heads. You know, these are my mates. Anyway, Bob's hanging around for a few months, and through his association with certain journalists and people like that, he finds out, well, there is something going on. And he's moved to write punky reggae party, you know, yeah. you know, which is about that interaction, you know, where he name checks the damn, the jam, the clash, the slits and all that. I think he even name checks the feel goods as well. Very good. The saying that that whole DIY thing, which is one of the major, is the major legacy of punk rock, as a black man and coming from a sort of third world background, all this shit, DIY is something that's intrinsic to the way we live, but it's just done in a way to survive. Whereas punk kind of showed you how to use that DIY 
ethic to go to a next level and better your situation, is what yeah. I'm saying, as opposed to just surviving. And that's why, you know, I'm, I, I reinvented myself directly through the inspiration of punk rock. Well, that's the thing, that's why reinvention was such a key part of punk as well. You know, you know, when the whole thing kicked off, you know, there's all this energy going by around. And like I say to people, you know, everyone's sort of picking up guitars. And sort of very soon the stage was full up, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I wanted to get involved. It wasn't, I realised that it wasn't a spectator sport. You know, it was a participant. Yeah, yeah. You know. So I picked up a Super 8 camera, you know, and started to film the bands I liked, you know. And the next thing I know, there's a review in... Um, and an enemy of a clash game was like, oh, and Don Litz is making a film. And I'm like, oh, that's not a bad idea. I'll call it a film. Oh, right, so it wasn't even planned. No, just, no, 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 yeah. no, not at all. I was just yeah. sort of filming, trying to film the bands that I liked. And I guess, I guess trying to teach myself the craft of filmmaking, you know. But initially I was just trying to film the bands that I liked. I thought if I could do that, well, that's the start, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like I say, in the press, he's making a film. Well, good idea. And I called it the punk rock movie and, you know, through punk rock, invented myself as Don Letts, the so-called filmmaker that I am today. Yeah, which is the ultimate thing that anything is possible. Isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if I'd have gone through the normal route, you know, and done done the things that school had taught me, I'd be a bus driver now. Yeah, you know, because I wasn't told to aspire to things like that. Because before punk rock, you know, a lot of aspects of the arts and the media were like this sort of old boy network or something had some thing around it that you couldn't see your way in you know and music was like that and certainly filmmaking was like that you know you wouldn't even dream you wouldn't even think about it as an option yeah but punk comes comes along and sky's the limit I think there's a certain aspect of it still like that there's a, there's a little space you don't have to go that route anymore, absolutely, it? absolutely. Well, that is the legacy of punk yeah. this, I mean this isn't something that's you know people have got what punk was about which as I said wasn't just the mohawk safety pins nihilism you know and power chords on guitars. It was about artistic freedom, political freedom. Yeah. You know, and like I say, I was, we were talking about that earlier, how some people took the word of punk as, as law and kind of, I think it trapped them. You know, yeah. You know, and there was almost this time, you know, that thing where there was almost like a punk police type thing where, <laughs> you know, punk was this and it wasn't this, this and that. But, you know, here we are today where the influence of punk has permeated every aspect of media and art and the way people I think deal with people each other on a one-to-one but we ain't wearing mohawks and I ain't got no leather jacket and you know what I mean yeah yeah I mean I, I mean the reason I'm saying all this stuff is obviously I've just finished this big project so I'm kind of infused by that whole idea that it is this ongoing dynamic I mean the reason I took on this project is I actually think that the overemphasis of that late 70s aspect of this Lineage, that's what it is, it's part of a lineage. The overemphasis of this late 70s bit almost does the idea of moving forward in the service because you look at it like this quirky thing that happened back at the back then, not realizing that actually it wasn't this weird thing that happened back then, it was a manifestation of something that had a continuity that goes back even before music. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, my, you know, I started to write the thesis, I'm like, well, what is punk rock? I'm like, well, you know, Lenny Bruce is punk rock. You know, um, the surrealists of punk rock. Well, I go, I would say, two thousand years ago in the marketplace, with two guys in the corner shouting the shit, and they'd be punk rock. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. When you realise what it's about, and uh, it was with that spirit that I took on this project, really yeah. to kind of make people. Because if you keep looking backwards, how do you go forwards? You kind of keep bumping into things, don't you? you but sometimes I mean? you have to go backwards, go forwards. I think. 
just to... Uh, no, well, hey, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made this film yeah. if I didn't believe that exactly. That you, you know, by example, that you know, you see what people have done, and it does inspire you to move forward. Yeah. Not to go look backwards through rose tinted glasses. Oh, wasn't it great back then? Yeah, what, yeah. I mean, I'm not being funny, but another reason that inspired me to do this is that when you look at what's going on right now, it's funny. You know, I have this weird theory. You know, you look at the last third of every decade, and it, and it's usually quite creative. But there's usually some kind of you know look at the end of the 50s, 60s, 70s even especially 80s. obviously you know yeah. there's usually this big 80s a big you know upheaval creatively and socially and whatever and the end of the night is it didn't happen nothing yeah you know like, I always wonder what that was about I mean sometimes I think you know maybe it was that you know everyone was kind of tricked by the optimism of the on you know forthcoming millennium which I think was a major diversion doesn't really shit's the same old shit you know I mean <laughs> yeah, this yeah. millennium are we talking about anyway I think maybe the advent of technology. I might have something to do with it. It's funny, I'd never hear me say this, but I always, you know, put in the means of the production in the hands of the people. Not a bad idea, on the face of it. Good idea. Affordable technology, not a bad idea. I'm all for it. But then I realise, especially now that everyone can do it, it's like, um, just because you can afford it don't mean you can do it. I mean, I've even worked out taking it on to another level beyond, beyond that, you know, that the new te affordable technologies... Downside of affordable technology is fucking mediocrity. Do you know what I mean? Because in the old days, you know, when a guitar cost you an up, like, a couple hundred quid, yeah, and you really had, want to do it. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. So it kind of was a bullshit detector. Because if yeah. you weren't really committed, you weren't going to go out and do whatever you had to do to get that guitar or to be able to afford the film to put in the camera. You dig what I'm saying? So I'm, you know, so I think maybe going back to my point is maybe that had a little bit to do with. Um, Something not happening at the end of the nineties. Advent of technology, and of course, everyone being in their bedrooms on their own. I mean, another thing I liked about the punk thing—it was very organic. Do you know what I mean? You know, bunch of guys in a garage. You know, with that chemistry going between them. I think very much a part of that chemistry that inspires create. You know, Jagger, Richard, Morrissey, Mar. Do you know what I mean? And I guess if you're on your Apple computer on your own, that bit of the chemistry is kind of castrated. It's very insular. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I mean, listen, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, obviously you can use lit technology to be punk, but it has, it's kind of, um, what is it? It's, it's, it's got a bit messy at the moment. And what I'm really saying is, now more than ever, when you look at what's going on around you, it's almost like punk fucking never happened. You know, so you definitely need to read. Well, I think it's there, but I think it's been marginalised. Exactly, isn't it? No, no, yeah, of course it's there. Okay. Now, I mean, like I say, I want to just get, you know, be straight about this. I believe it's like the force in Star Wars. You know, yeah. somewhere it's out there. Yeah. you just got to look in different places now. You know, if you're looking at the fucking top 40 in England and America, forget about it. You know, you've got to look to whole new fucking territories where maybe they haven't got 30 years of cultural baggage and the idea is still new in this place, you know, maybe now in Iraq and, you know, places like that and China, you know, you've got to look further afield. And I also think that, you know, to look for the true spirit of punk, maybe you need to look at the naive and the amateur, you know, people that don't, like I say, have this cultural baggage where everything is referential. Yeah. You know I mean, I think that's where all the creative stuff is going to really be coming from now in the future is the amateur and the naive. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe you know a lot of shit, enough kind of... <laughs> it's, a, it's a fucker trust me I know you know I try to write scripts all the time and sometimes I wish I was stupid again yeah you know what I'm getting I'll tell you, yeah. you've been listening to the John Rob Tapes with me John Rob. 
Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War and produced by Sophie Porter. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share. Thanks for listening. Every joke is a tiny revolution, said George Orwell, and each week comedian Tiff Stevenson interviews fellow comics such as Nish Kumar and Sarah Pascoe about the power of comedy to disrupt. Imagine a custard pie splatting into a human face forever. Find Tiny Revolutions wherever you find podcasts and at lushplayer.com. Thank <laughs> you.